I think when it came to the early days of Strava, like we saw what it was to get big fast. We saw what it was to take a company public. A lot of our desire with Strava wasn't so much to replicate that as it was we really admired these consumer brands out there that he and I used to always sit down and say, if we could have started any other company in the world, what would it have been? With all credibility to the Oracles and Cisco's and Apple's and even Facebook's of the world, those were not the companies we were naming, right? We were naming Oakley Sunglasses and Patagonia and uh, Virgin Records and all these great sort of iconic consumer brands. And like, ah, oh, oh, that'd be so cool. Can we do that? And so then we just had these humble beginnings. What is up, you sexy bastards? It's your boy, Rhino Squirrel, a.k.a. Rav I Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talk to the very special guest, Mark Ganey, the founder of Strava.com. Strava is one of my favorite apps that I use every single week. I use it to map and track all of my bike rides. You can check me out at Strava.com slash athletes slash Noah Kagan. So if I find myself still thinking back about a conversation I had days or weeks later, I know it was amazing, and I keep thinking about so many things from this conversation with Mark, and I cannot wait to share it with every single one of you. If you've ever wanted to learn about how to grow and run a company you love, then this episode is for you. In this conversation, you're going to learn four major things, not just three, four. Number one, Strava's key decision to start super, super, super niche, an inch wide and a mile deep, and building a product for themselves. Number two, Mark's equation of success. Number three, the noise of opportunity and when to say no. Hint. Theme goals are key. And the four bonus is, what does the alarm clock mean in Mark's life? You're going to learn those four things, plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. Enjoy. Before we jump into the conversation, are you subscribed to my email list? I know you are, so just ignore this part. But if you're not, I put my best tips in a single short email and hook up exclusive content to my email subscribers. Sendfox.com slash Noah. That is sendfox.com slash Noah to join my delicious newsletter. And a special pre-show shout out to listener Skiing Corey from the US of A. He said, great listen and lots of good information. Thank you so much, man. I love you. And if you want a shout out in a future episode, just leave an iTunes review or any review. I check every single one of them. They mean a lot to me. What's the new meeting format? Are you doing a lot of like Strava bike calls, Strava walk calls? Yeah, it's the walking and the running. I go out on these recovery runs now, throw the AirPods in and just let's carry on a 30-minute one-on-one catch up. Or early morning this morning was great. Get out there, do my early morning meetings. But I literally have stopped people and said, oh, hold on a second. I got to start my Strava. I don't want to lose that 0.1 mile. So that's actually like a, a really interesting kind of way to just dive into this is like, how do you guys think you've changed athletic behavior? The mission from day one was pretty simple. Which, you know, How do we just inspire? Even for Michael and I, we love being active, but man, it's just amazing the way life gets in the way. So can we just build some tools and some fun things that if we're the only two customers, it'll allow us to just maybe get out just one more day a week. You know, we met on the crew team together. We kind of had that in our DNA. We wanted to keep that going. And I hope that that's a lot of what Strava's changed is that when you bring together this community and you kind of get those kudos or you see somebody who actually got up at 4.30 a.m. to get their workout in, that's enough to usually kind of push me to go find at least 30 minutes and just, just sweat a little bit. Now, have we gone beyond that? Yeah, I'm fascinated at watching the way people address segments and KOMs and, you know, weekly goals. But for us, it was all about just go have some fun. I can't let you off on that one. Tell me some of these crazies. Oh, my goodness. I mean, the, uh, you know, what are we seeing right now? We're seeing everything from uh, the gentleman, I'm going to forget his name right now, but the, he basically painted the entire city of San Francisco with his heat map where he ran every single road in the entire city. And he's actually spawned a whole trend now where people take their personal heat map and they make sure they don't miss a single road or trail in their community. 
We've got one right now. We've got the gentleman who's challenging people to do 20,000 feet of vertical within five miles, I think it is, or maybe it's even five kilometers, but it's within a very short stretch. So what you have are people using the Strava route builder to determine how much elevation can I find in as small a period of, you know, a small space. And they go for it. You know, the number of people who are out there Everesting, I don't know if you've heard this trend where you just try to do the total elevation of uh, climbing Everest, but in as few a hours as possible. I, mean, just, I could go on for hours. It's incredible. No, so, actually, can you keep going? These are really interesting. Oh, man. I mean, right now during COVID-19, I'm, we're just fascinated by, I mean, the number of marathons that have been run on porches and back patios and on the rooftops of apartment buildings. And actually not just marathons, 100 mile distances. Just the intensity with which people will continue their sport, even when constrained by shelter in place, is just, it's awe-inspiring. Those are some really good ones. Just And those are just sort of the immediate things that people are doing. The charitable acts that come from this. We've got, in the UK, there's just been phenomenal activity. There's this 555 phenomenon, which is, I think it's do 5K for five days in a row and invite five of your friends to do it. It just That's cool. took off like wildfire. And so they've just seen this amazing compassion. And oh, I'm sorry. And there's a fifth, there was another one. It was $5 to the NHS. So, hey, give up five pounds. Mm go do your five miles in five days and invite five of your friends. And just that kind of camaraderie around that type of thing, really powerful. What have you done, Mark? What have you created? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think what's what's amazing in certain businesses that you guys have done is you kind of created, to some extent, a platform or a playground. And it's almost amazing to see where the the audience, the players are taking it. Yeah. You know, Michael, and I I owe it to him. He said this a number of years ago. It's like, we don't own Strava. We don't run Strava. We're somewhere between a curator and, and just sort of a park attendant. And it is truly owned by the community. It's something we've gone back to our roots in recent months because we realized uh, when Michael and I sort of stepped back in, it's like, we got to give this back to the athletes. We got to, let's get back to just building athlete awesome, but just everything. And you're exactly right. It's beyond our wildest dreams, what has happened in the last 10 years. Well, I want to highlight one thing you said just for the audience that's watching. And, and this is, I, I really admire this. And it's something I try to remind myself is build for yourself. You're like, hey, we're athletes. We want to have something fun. We want to have something to keep us accountable. Yeah. And so I, I love that. And I, I really want to encourage everyone to follow your lead. Can you, you tell me how did the company, you know, maybe lose some of the direction that you wanted it and then what kind of changes you guys had to do? You know, it was subtle. It's, and I don't want to say we, we lost direction, but we, we were really focused as a company over the last three or four years around growth, around growth of the community. And it's an important part of a successful business. You know, we, it's not like I look back and say it was a mistake. And we're proud of where we got to. I mean, we've got well north of 50 million plus athletes that are on Strava today. We, we add a million athletes every month. We're wow. geographically distributed. You know, we're across 195 countries. You can upload 32 different activities to Strava today. I'm glad that we went through that. But honestly, no, I think in the process, some of what got lost was just our ability to listen effectively to our community, to understand what they needed from Strava. Because we were always trying to launch the next big thing to either continue to grow or so forth, we were losing sight of just, I'll call it maintenance, just ensuring that we were improving the features that we had actually spent a lot of time on three years ago. When we come back to our roots, you know, Michael stepped back in as CEO in November. I stepped back into a much more active role. And we've just sort of channeled the company to, to be very focused and disciplined around, we call it athlete awesome and business awesome. And business awesome for us is, it's our subscription business. We live or die by our athletes. We're not ad supported. We don't have four other business models. 
Like we live or die by the freemium business that we're on. And so we just said to the whole company, let's go be great at that. And in exchange, let's just create a really amazing experience. I am a paying subscriber. So I, I, I you. love your product. I pay it. It's awesome. I'm a holdout though. I was like, I'm not giving these guys money no matter what. They'll never get a dime. And I've changed my mindset over there, especially, you know, as I've made more money and I try to just pay forward back. So I, I pay the creators. Like you guys are putting a lot of money so that I can enjoy it. And if I have the ability, you know, I want to keep supporting it. Yeah. What does it mean to be athlete awesome? And then how do you keep the company focused on that? It's a simple way for us saying, are we very clear who our customer is and who we're building for? And that we've, we've got to say no to a lot of things. There was a little bit of a challenge around just being a slave to too many masters. If you look on Strava today, and I'll give you an example of where it works really well. So as we've grown as a community, there's a great opportunity for us to incorporate other sports brands into the Strava experience. And when it's done well, uh, you can see it on the challenges. I don't know. If, I think you participate in some of the challenges. I've seen that where yeah. they're better when brands are partnered with us and, and offer up sort of rewards for finishing and you know, all of that kind of stuff. So that's a great example where both our partner and Strava are committed to the athlete experience, to that athlete awesome opportunity. But the brand is also, you know, full disclosure, like they'll pay to, to sponsor that challenge. Where we fall short is when we start to find ourselves like, oh, what are other things we can do for the brands and, and get the brands more integrated into Strava mm. and so forth. And we just wanted to be really careful that we want to partner with them around great experiences for our athletes. But if we ever start to lose sight and all of a sudden we're building for those brands so they have maybe greater access to our community, that's where we tend to fail. Yeah, because I'm not a runner. I know there's like drama. Some of the Strava runners are like, oh, you don't give us enough attention, which I don't care about. I think what's interesting as a business that you guys do is that you have a phrase that you can ask yourselves, which is almost a, it's a value of sorts. As you guys are doing things in the company, it's not, I'm assuming, is that how it is internally? Like when you're doing something like, yo, is this athlete awesome or is this something else? Yeah, you know, that's exactly right. We got 180 folks inside Strava today who are all passionate Strava members as well. So it oftentimes even starts inside the four walls. Like, is this awesome for me? You know, we do a quarterly, we do what are called Strava Jams. They're basically the equivalent of a hackathon. And it's awesome because you'll see 30, 40 projects come to the surface where, why didn't I think of that? Yeah, that's another, we got to deliver that to our athletes as soon as possible. We've got one right now. I don't know if you've discovered, we rolled out routes where it's like a whole new chapter for Strava because, you know, what we're so excited about at Strava is there's some things that we can do today that we could not do 10 years ago. Like if you think about it, when we started Strava, it was a really interesting challenge, which was we have one cyclist uploading one ride to Strava. How do we create something interesting, right? It's like talking Man. about the ultimate single player mode. And we figured it out. And then we got a couple riders on there. And, and over time, we started to build this experience. Well, you fast forward to today, we've got over 3 billion activities on Strava. We're global in terms of sort of our presence. And so it afforded us the opportunity to kind of take a step back and say, what can we do now that we couldn't do before? And that's where this whole notion of exploration and showing people routes. So routes is just a simple thing where you tell us, I'm located here and I need a 20-mile ride. And with a click of a button, we'll just make some suggestions. We'll show you. And, and you can then play with it in terms of, hey, I want more dirt versus road or I want more hills, more flat. It's still early in its days, but it's so much fun because it just creates a whole new playground, like you described, that you can sort of use Strava with. You know, one of the things that I, when I think of Strava, I think of, I think you list in a community, but you guys also seem to kind of pave your own way. Like, I think people are like, do roots. Why haven't you done roots in years ago? And, you know, it, it created opportunities. Like I use Ride with GPS, which is a really cool service. But I guess I'm curious how you guys, what have you said no to? And then how are you guys, how do you guys choose those directions? Uh, yeah, it's the hardest thing inside Strava. I mean, we call it the noise of opportunity. It's deafening. Ooh. There are so many 
great directions that we can take. And we see it. We see the feedback every day. I was talking to our community management team just yesterday and, and fully acknowledged that there is rarely a piece of feedback that comes in where I don't say that's a great idea. So how do we do it? There is some really ugly sausage making that goes on inside Strava. You know, I wish I could tell you that we had this really artful way of prioritizing and so forth. We're getting better. Part of it is setting some specific long-term goals around some themes. So we have some themes around areas. We have themes around community and what we think is important for us over the next 6, 12, 18 months that we want to deliver to the community. What we mean by community is not the global community. We mean your community, Noah. I don't know how many followers you have in Strava, but I know for myself, there's the mass people that I love to follow. And then there's this sort of concentric circles. There's down to that tight group, kind of my tribe. And there's a set of features that we know we want to continue to develop for that tribe so that you can communicate effectively. You can do your meetups. You can challenge each other. The fun things there. There's themes around competition. There's themes around gear. There's themes around training. So we kind of had these broad categories. And we're trying to structure the company in a way where we, we move those forward at a pace that feels both innovative, but also affords us the time to always be working on the little things. It's just fascinating how sometimes you want to know how they're, they're cooking in the kitchen. It's ugly. Our kitchen is, there's a lot of food spilled on the, on the ground, but we're good at cleaning it up. So it always tastes good in the end, I hope. Yeah. At least uh, it'll get to taste better. I think what, what's interesting is in retrospect, it's always easy. Like, oh, yeah, of course I need like a social network tracker for my biking activities, which I think that's the majority of the activities or it's the highest one. I was one of the first people at Facebook and now everyone's like, oh, of course Facebook makes sense. But at the time people were like, I'm going to connect with the person and then message them on this thing. And I think what people forget about Strava is that there was RunKeeper and there was MyFitness. And there was, I don't know, probably you know it better than I do, 10 other competitors. And so I was really curious to hear more from like the stories and, and the feelings is that you did it 10 years ago, a little bit over 10 years ago. You did your own money. That's balls, man. You're taking 100% risk. What gave you that conviction to put your own money in and, you know, some of the moments of doubts, especially 10 years ago, because there, there wasn't all the phone stuff there is and then the Wahoos and the Garmins. No, you're right. Yeah, it's, it is funny. People have this uh, impression of Strava as this mobile app that services these athletes around the world across all these various sports. But you're right. When we started 2009, to be very clear, we were a website where you had to use a very specific piece of equipment. You had to own a Garmin cycling computer. It was called a Garmin 305. It was kind of like the baseline computer that you had on your handlebars. And you had to bring that home, plug it into the back of your computer and upload that data to Strava. It was really crude. So why would we even contemplate a business like that? Part of it was, I love to tell entrepreneurs, I was like, let me be clear. Our expectations, we have this phrase, I took it from one of our my old finance executives in a prior company, and it's an equation, success equals results minus expectations. And there's times where you can sandbag and it becomes very inappropriate. But I think when it came to the early days of Strava, like Michael and I have been very fortunate. We, we'd had a great run with the prior company that we'd built in the late 90s, early 2000s. We saw what it was to get big fast. We saw what it was to take a company public. A lot of our desire with Strava wasn't so much to replicate that as it was, could we go create a company that, as I mentioned earlier, A, solves problems that we have, that are important to us, and B, frankly, kind of the intellectual challenge of, we really admired these consumer brands out there. That He and I used to always sit down and say, if we could have started any other company in the world, what would it have been? With all credibility to the Oracles and Cisco's and Apple's and even Facebook's of the world, those were not the companies we were naming, right? We were naming Oakley Sunglasses and Patagonia and uh, Virgin Records and all these great sort of iconic consumer brands. And like, oh, 
ah, oh, that'd be so cool. Can we do that? And so then we just had these humble beginnings. The early stage was really just, what's the problem we have? And it's like, ah, oh, you know, this data. And then I got to give credit to somebody here. Michael and I invited somebody else in early on. Davey Kitchell, we were just so fortunate to get onto our team. He was a buddy that Michael had met back in Hanover, New Hampshire. And he was also an ex-rower, you know, an endurance athlete, big cyclist and runner. And he had this passion for turning performance data into something that I'll just call magical. Just He wanted to figure out how you could visualize it better, how you could do it. And he and Michael and I, we started brainstorming around, what could we do with this data coming off of this computer, this little handlebar thing? And all the credit to him, segments and stuff like that, that's where it really came from. And so with that, we just started tinkering. And if it had been a company that only supported 10 employees and a couple hundred cyclists every month, honestly, we probably would have been happy as long as we were profitable and, and growing. And then it just, we caught some really fascinating tailwinds. Facebook, you're right. You know, what happened with Facebook was it, it introduced to the world the value of sharing personal information, mm. which did not exist prior to that time. Why would I possibly tell someone what I had for breakfast? Why would I possibly share my workout? But Facebook did that. And then when you add to that, just the explosion in wearable devices and smartphones and the way in which you could capture workout data seamlessly, game-changing for us. You know, we could not have gotten any luckier to see the advent of the iPhone and Fitbit and Apple Watch and Garmin is everything that they've done. That sounds like the tidal wave didn't even get started. I mean, you guys were maybe like two years ahead of the tidal wave. We were. You know, our luck early was that you mentioned sort of the run keepers and met my fitnesses. We went left while they all went right. We took this strategy that was, let's go an inch wide and a mile deep with one very specific audience. They're affectionately known as mammals. I can joke because I'm one of them. M-A-M-I-L, middle-aged man in Lycra. <laughs> that was our target audience, Noah. That's I'm becoming one. This is the worst. I'm becoming one. Sorry. Yeah, you're, you're headed there. You're not there yet. But let me tell you, like we went so narrow and said, okay, let's pick this audience because these were the guys spending $300 on that Garmin device. These were the guys obsessing over their data. These were the guys totally hiding, by the way. Like they did not want their friends or their coworkers to know they were out at three o'clock in the afternoon doing a 30 mile ride, but they were so passionate about their sport and their bicycle and their buddies. While all these other guys were kind of pursuing larger markets and runners, we just went deep and we went with that group. It proved to be a pivotal moment for us because by going there, we developed this credibility in the market and sort of a foundation of authenticity, just Hey, these guys really understand. Michael and I aren't cyclists by definition. We're, I love to mountain bike, and Michael's a pretty good road cyclist today, 10 years later. But frankly, we were a couple of runners that just found this niche and said, let's go talk to them and let's see if we can figure that out. And so that's where the early years really paid off. Then we caught these other tailwinds between mobile apps and sort of expansion across sports and expansion across geographies. How did you get to that decision to zag? You know, we'd been really lucky in the prior company. So Michael and I were fortunate to build a company called Kana Communications in the late 90s, early 2000s. It was an enterprise software. Basically, we designed communication tools for all these budding dot-coms and anybody, any company that was trying to build their web presence in the late 90s, right, at the birth of the commercial internet. And we took this idea. What we found was a problem in the marketplace, which was customer email response. If you went and built a website, almost by definition, if you were doing any kind of commerce, you were faced with a deluge of customer email and there was just no solution in the market. And so we came up with a pretty easy way to manage that traffic. 
But the irony was when we went to go raise capital for it and, and find some investors, the vast majority of investors said, you're not even a product. You're a feature. You're definitely not a company. You know, it's like, are you guys, look at Siebel. And I mean, there are all these crazy, you know, Clarify and Scopus. And there were all these classic sort of enterprise software companies that had email in them. It's like, how are you going to survive? And our point was, we hear you, but we have these customers who are willing to actually pay us for this. It might be a point solution and they're paying us. So we're a little confused. It's like, and, and we were naive. We were also innocent. We were 26 years old. And it's like, what do you mean? I mean, we found a product and we found a customer and they have a need and they're willing to pay us. Why isn't that a good business? And candidly, between you and I know they were wrong. We went inch wide, mile deep with the customer email thing. And what the investors missed was actually not all of them. We had some great investors who did come in. But what they missed was that, one, we established that credibility and we got in with these folks. And as they started to think about their greater infrastructure, we were part of that conversation. And two, nobody could have predicted how big a problem customer email would ultimately become. And you know, we were able to ride, ride that wave and, and build, a, build a great business. I mean, we you know, 1,200 employees, hundreds of millions of revenue, took it public. It was a lot of fun. That taught us a lot about it's okay to, to be niche. Niche gives you a lot of confidence once you start to get number one in a niche is a really powerful place because once you're there, you start to have confidence and now you, since now you can think about expansion. That's the toughest one, man. And I help a lot of people start businesses and even in our own companies that we run, you get greedy, especially when you're starting. I'm like, yo, you'll give me money. You'll give me money. Oh, I'll take it wherever I can get it. It's, you know, as you get going, I really like what you said about being number one in something that really resonated with me. Oh yeah. Not only do I think it gives you that confidence and then think about expansion in a more sort of thoughtful, strategic way, I also just think you're often surprised at, number one, that market itself, how oftentimes it will end up being much bigger than you initially anticipated. It's just hard to see until you're in it and working with that clientele. We're two for two with our own companies. Doesn't mean that there aren't a bunch of other uh, ways to do it, but we've been happy with the result. No, that's why I wanted to share your story. I mean, you're two for two. Most people are over either not doing anything, over for zero or over for a lot more than that. It's been how long now since it started? Over 10 years, right? Yeah, we started uh, January of 2009. So we are in our 11th year. And it's funny that kind of after, right after a recession, I think a lot of people think that there wasn't opportunities after recessions. And I always like highlight like, recession was 2008 to 2010. And you guys actually came out during that period. Did you have moments of doubt, especially because you're using your own money? And I don't think you guys, when did you guys even start monetizing? We financed it through the first couple of years, but we did end up raising capital. And the monetization process was there from the very beginning. Oh, really? That was there. We were always freemium from almost day one of going out with a commercial product. It was a different type of freemium. In the earliest days, we were usage-based. Because you were using a Garmin cycling computer, basically what we said is you have full access to all the features for five rides a month for free. After the sixth ride, you got to pay. And we love that model. <laughs> Our conversion <laughs> rates were off the charts. The challenge for us was when we launched our mobile app. We launched our mobile app in mid-2011. Quick backstory, we, we, we launched it because we ha were trying to solve a very specific problem, which was, man, our barrier to entry here is really high. You got to go spend $300 with Garmin just to start working with Strava. We need to lower the barrier. Can we create a tracking app on Strava that allows people to participate without having to spend all that money? Now, that was great because what happened was as soon as we launched our app, Boy, do we see growth. I mean, off the charts, you know, the app store and everything else. But the downside was we had this naive impression that people will use that app to track and then they'll go to our beautiful website to see all these wonderful features that we have. Turns out nobody leaves the app. They, they, don't, they don't do that. And so we were in a conundrum because 
we wanted them to continue using the app to track and obviously to experience Strava, but we couldn't tell them to stop after five rides a month. So we shifted in late 2011 to a, a feature-based freemium model where you do get a lot of great stuff in the free version of Strava. You know, we're getting more and more confident that the really, really great stuff is on the other side of the paywall. That's where you want to ultimately get. How do you think companies should think about that? I want to go to more of the scale and strategy stuff, but I think specifically pricing. How did you guys figure out this is the free stuff now and this part is like they're serious or, or how do you decide what's, what's on which line? You know, that one's really evolved in a pretty aggressive fashion here, even just in the last 12 to 18 months. Historically, we were very focused on almost the more serious you were about the training, the more likely the features were going to be on the other side of the paywall. So if you're a cyclist and you had your power meter and so forth, there were some really great things that we could do on that side. We've changed that completely. Um, frankly, we've heard over and over, your free is too good. And we're the first to acknowledge it. Like there's so much that's in there that the vast majority of the folks are happy. And, and frankly, we've been, I don't want to say we've been fine with that, but our focus now is very much around make sure that free is, is good enough. People who want that tracking and want that community aspect of Strava, they can get that there. But almost anything that we do inside Strava today, it falls on the other side of the paywall. We talked about routes earlier. That's going to fall on the other side of the paywall. It's because we want to have this very direct athlete awesome experience. We want to our customers to know we're building for them. We can measure NPS. We can do other things. But ultimately, we measure success on when our athletes start saying, hey, you know that subscription? Like It's a no-brainer. You got to subscribe. We appreciate your theory, which is, hey, I want to pay it forward and I want to support these guys. <laughs> That's good up to a point. But frankly, yeah. we want you to ultimately say, Guys, you've got to pay. It's five bucks a month. It's a no-brainer. And so that's totally. that's a lot of the thinking that goes into Strava today. I think sometimes we don't think about the value ratio to cost that we get of things. So I pay $5 or whatever. I don't know what I pay you guys, honestly. And how much value I get out of just using Strava on the regular. And I think a lot of us don't think about that proportionally. It's on us. We feel like we realize we need to do a better job of, of making sure people appreciate that. So You put your money in the beginning, though. You put your own cash in, in making it going. Did you have moments of doubt? Was there any moments or when was there moments of like, oh, maybe this wasn't such a great idea? From a business model standpoint, we were really fortunate. As I mentioned, we built that freemium. So we built the ability to have a subscription really early to test that. And we were pleased with the conversion rates. So I think that we were confident there was something. We just weren't sure what the scale would look like. Where moments of doubt came from, ironically, had more to do with just unintended consequences of, of the Strava experience. Like there was a pivotal moment a couple of years in where I think it was 2012, you know, we had a wrongful death lawsuit. And, you know, we were accused of, it's hard for me to go into it, but basically a young cyclist, a uh, gentleman who was, I think, 41 years old, passed away while doing a descent. And two years later, we were sued by his extended family for wrongful death, basically accusing us of being sort of like a race director or an event director and, and creating a, an unsafe scenario for him. And, it was thrown out by the courts and you know we obviously defended ourselves with vigor and felt very confident in our position. Just the fact that someone would even accuse us of something like that was where I think for me personally, you have to take a step back and reflect on we're here to inspire people to live healthy lives. If we're not conducting ourselves in that way and we're not contributing in a positive way to this universe, life's too short. We shouldn't do it. Sorry, it's maybe not the answer you're looking for, but for me, the reflection, the business itself has been very good to us. It's just making sure that those unintended, you know, another one, heat map. I don't know if you watched the history of our heat map, but it was about two years ago where we had this fascinating sort of explosion of press where people were accusing us of outing military bases around the world with our heat map. And 
the reality of the situation wasn't that. We have a very good relationship with the military, and there was nothing that we were disclosing that they weren't comfortable with. But it led to really hard discussions. What does privacy look like on Strava? And are we ensuring that people understand the controls they have and the options they have? There was some education we just realized we needed to do. I think sometimes with these businesses, you don't even expect it. Like you're probably not thinking, oh, if they're leaving from the house and people and we have celebs like Lance and they can see where he lives, like we have to probably consider starting it outside of those things. It's just probably stuff you didn't, it's just the playground exploded. You really are writing the rules as you go because it's both the fun, but the curse of, of building companies where you're, if you're building from scratch, then some of this has never been dealt with before. You know, as someone who was at Facebook, I mean, yeah. who could have imagined? I love that you're purpose-driven. And this is just me projecting. I'm just assuming that. But you said like, we're doing it for these athletes. We're doing it for this, like the love of athletics. That's a purpose. Like you have a mission that you're on. Oh yeah. That's not getting stopped. With Market Facebook, I was there in 2005 and he was very clear he was going to connect the whole world and nothing was going to stop him. And to work there with that type of vision was inspiring. Yeah. And he recruited the you know top people in the world and it was special. Yeah. And he remains consistent in his message even today, but there are unintended consequences of connecting the world. When you ask sort of where are those, I don't want to call them, even moments of doubt is too strong a word, but when you have to step back and just make sure to reflect that your your purpose is not at odds with other sort of things that you value, that's the tricky part sometimes. You know, did you have other business ideas? For some reason, I was really curious, what other business ideas did you have and why did you decide this one instead? There's a long history on this one. So Strava actually dates back to 1995. Quick history. So Michael and I, who are co-founders here, we met on the crew team at Harvard in, in the late 80s. Uh, he graduated 88. I was uh, class of 90. We met in that boathouse. And it was important for two reasons. Not only did we become these best friends, and now we've been business partners for 20 plus years, but the experience we had in that boathouse was life-changing. To be on that team at that moment in time, just the camaraderie, the esprit de corps, the trash talking, the competition, the grind. I mean, everything that just came with I mean, no, it was it was beautiful. And my degree should say crew. My education reflects nothing of what I studied in the classroom. It was just these great four years. The only problem was we graduated and it poof just appeared. So when I decided that I wanted to be an entrepreneur in 1995, I, I left my job. I'd been working for a private equity firm in Palo Alto and I left to go start something. Michael, he'd gone off, got his PhD in economics and was teaching. I was brainstorming with him and what I was missing, going back to this notion, I was missing that team. I was missing sort of just the camaraderie that came from that. And so we created a business plan called Kana Sports. And it was the world's first virtual locker room. And we were going to use this burgeoning thing, the internet, to bring our buddies back together and to try to create that. Good news was we ultimately created it. The bad news was, man, were we early, right? It just, there was no way it was going to work in 1995. But it introduced us to the customer email problem. So in an ironic twist of fate, that entrepreneurial journey, we met with a bunch of guys, including a bunch of sports companies, and they actually started telling us about this customer email. And when we realized that there was just no way we were going to create an experience that would work, we gravitated towards this thing that we found along the way and, and built Kana. We just had to change the name. That's where it came from. So to fast forward to 2009, we pursued a number of different ideas sort of in parallel, but this one really started to take on traction. What were the other ideas? Probably the one we spent the most time on, actually, Davey Kitchell and I kind of paralleled down the Strava path, and Michael and one of our other early folks, um, actually his nephew, Pella, they pursued something called Vatten, uh, which stands for, I think, water in Swedish. It was our disdain for the just sheer volume of plastic bottles that get consumed every day for water. And so we actually started to look at 
could there be a way where you could basically deliver water in the same way that it's the old milkman style? Like, what would it look like? Could you do a scalable model around, you know, glass or it, clearly we're happy we pursued the Strava one, but it was, um, you know, it was those kinds of things. We were trying to think about climate change. We were trying, you know, other trends that are out there that were important to us personally. And so we, we were looking at, is there something around water? Is there something around recycling? There's, there's gotta be a better way. Did you just launch both and you saw more traction? Because by the way, I, I do believe I just saw something like that launched like a month ago, where it's like a subscription for water bottles. We never went in any further than than researching what could it start to look like. We were sort of researching these in parallel. How did you research Strava? So how did you get the data or the to get the, the conviction that it would make sense? Yeah, you know, this is the other thing, law of small numbers. Uh, you know, it's so easy to sit out here today and say, we're getting a million athletes every month and isn't this great? The pivotal moment for us, so Davey Kitchell built this really raw website. We called it the green machine because it was this horrific color of green, uh, not the Strava orange that we're also, you know, beloved to. This was summer of 2008. We built this website that had a bunch of features in it. Uh, frankly, probably almost probably as many as Strava has today. It was incredible what he was able to put into this thing. And we invited basically 10 riders on the West Coast and 10 riders on the East Coast, 10 cyclists on each coast that were buddies of ours. We ensured that they had Garmin's. So we literally went out and bought Garmin's for these guys and said, look, during the Tour de France in summer to, in July of 2008, we're going to run this competition. And all we ask is that you guys upload each of your daily rides to this Strava thing. And we're going to run competitions along the way. So one day we'd send out an email to these guys and say, hey, whoever posts the fastest 5K on their, on their bike, sometime in the next 24 hours, free set of race wheels. And then we just sit back and watch. And a couple things happened. One was just watching the interaction amongst the cyclists was fascinating. We didn't really have it built into Strava, but just the emails back and forth and the, the West Coast versus East Coast and just, again, the trash talking and the camaraderie. The other thing was behavioral change. Like we realized, boy, you put a set of race wheels in front of a bunch of cyclists and all of a sudden they weren't just recruiting the 10 guys that we had asked to be on Strava. They were recruiting their entire cycling club to go out and create like this Peloton so that they could absolutely knock out the 5K faster than anybody on the West Coast. We did that for about a month in 2008 and came out of that with, frankly, strong conviction that we'd found something. The feedback we were getting from them was that they were all saying, you're making my cycling life better. I want to keep uploading. And when we heard that, we didn't necessarily have the business model figured out, but we realized, let's keep pulling on this thread. Let's put some more engineering resources towards this. Let's see if, you know, we don't know how we're going to commercialize this quite yet, but there's something here. That was what gave us the conviction. You guys did get a lot of celebrities as well to come onto Strava, I've noticed. I mean, like the cycling world. So we're really grateful. You're, you're absolutely right. We probably have two-thirds of the pro tour now that uploads even the stages during the tour. We've got Olympic gold medal performances on Strava. You mentioned Lance earlier. You know, Lance, has been a, he's been a great fan and supporter of us for years, which we're appreciative of. The thing I will tell you is that we don't do endorsements. There's nobody who's paid. There's no, we're not your classic sort of sports marketing firm. We're no good at it. We could never figure out how to do it. The folks that you're finding on Strava, for the most part, they found it because they're having fun, because they're buddies. The, the amount of trash talking that happens on the pro tour turns out after every the stage, it's fascinating. Like there are internal competitions that are going on, not just for the stage victory, but who had the KOM on that climb or you know, yeah. who was who pulled off something else. One thing I admire about you, and I want to just give you, I don't know if you recognize it, is that you said no to making swag. You said no that you're not going to do some runners in the beginning. You said no that, hey, we're not good at this endorsement stuff. And I think as I'm getting older, I'm almost 40. I'm trying to, I'm just so ready for this mammal life. And I'll tell you, five years ago, me and my buddy Anton, 
we always talk so much shit on these lycra what's the, the spandex stuff i was like oh yeah, yeah. look at those people oh you look silly i wear it all the time i love it i love it <laughs> oh yeah yeah there's a reason it's worn out there but it does look really odd it's a little bit odd but uh, i mean i commend you guys for saying no and i think for me as i've gotten older i'm really trying to get better not not at no but what am I yes to? What are my strengths? And I think you guys are, you really guys are doing amazing at that. If I had our VP of engineering on this call right now, he would say, we are horrible at it. We continually sort of bite off more than we can chew. It's probably not no, it's more like not yet. That's a great idea, just not yet. And I'd say we're, sometimes we're really good and, and sometimes not, but having that no list is as important as, are we really clear about the yes list? We've got a board meeting coming up, and I know that part of that conversation will be, are we clear what we will not be doing and making sure that even the board understands that. So with Strava, I think one thing I started thinking about was the amount of insight you have into exercise and in healthy habits. Like you guys literally have the world's repository of health. Like there, maybe I'd say Fitbit and Apple have it on a, on a different scale. What are some ways or habits uh, for people to build better workouts? I'm not an advanced cyclist. Like I hit 80 miles a week as my target. So I guess I was curious, what have you observed for people to be able to do it or get started, especially with, you know, with Strava and what you've seen? A couple kind of high-level observations, and, and we can brainstorm here a bit. As somebody who's, who's been on the platform, you may have insights as well. But early on in Strava, we realized we were creating a bit of a competitive atmosphere that was almost over the top. People constantly going out to chase their PR or a segment KO or something like that. You didn't track it. It didn't happen. Yeah. That whole mentality. And to the point where we were accused of, a lot of people were actually intimidated and unwilling to join Strava because like, I'm not good enough. I'm not fast enough. I'm not an athlete. Like There was a pivotal moment when we introduced photos to the activity process and your ability to upload a photo with your activity. That was a pivotal moment for us. And part of the internal discussion, this is full disclosure, part of the internal discussion was we need to get people to slow down a little bit. They need to go and enjoy the ride. They need to actually stop once in a while and capture that sunset or that sunrise or that mud that they just went through because that's just as inspiring as somebody's performance. And so I think part of my piece of advice would be what I've learned over time, recovery days, easy days, that's training. Rest is part of training. I put just as much emphasis, anybody who goes and actually looks at the details of my activities on Strava says, I go slow a lot. Like my runs are often 9, 30, 10 minute mile pace, but they're really important because by doing those days, they allow me those, you know, couple days a week where maybe I am pushing for some reason, because there's a specific thing that I'm pushing towards. So, you know, one piece of advice that I have is don't worry about pace, speed, like what you look like on Strava. That's not what matters. It's recognizing that it all is part of training and that rest and sleep and, you know, the things that you can't track on Strava, those are just as important as the things that you can. That's one observation that I've seen both with my own sort of journey in, in athletics as well as just the way in which I've watched people behave on Strava. The other one that I would say is the importance of setting goals. And this isn't just a feature inside Strava because, frankly, this is an area we need to improve. You can set some basic goals in there, but even just more generally, like the statistics we've seen, what happens, A, when you set a goal versus when you don't on Strava is amazing. It's like 80% greater likelihood you're going to accomplish it if you set it versus improvement that we see just naturally for somebody who's uploading daily. Another one, training with other individuals, whether you're training virtually, when you have more followers on Strava versus when you're independent on Strava, big difference in terms of just the quality and consistency of your training. You need those teammates. It's really not about competing with them. It is the kudos. It's just the camaraderie. So we find that's been a really important part of Strava that we underestimated in the early days. So those would be three. You know, don't underestimate the rest. 
you know, set the goal, even if it's a simple one. And then, yeah, find your team, find that group that supports you. You know, one thing that struck me though, Mark, you sound so passionate about it. You're obviously an athlete. You're an athlete first. Why did you step out for a while? Because that's something, you know, I think about in my own company. I, in, within Sumo Group, I, I took kind of three years off. I was like, I'm out. And, and I guess I'm, I'm curious your journey with that. It's a fascinating journey that's had many chapters. So I'll walk you through it real quick because it all sort of has a common thread. When we launched Strava, Michael was still on the East Coast. I was on the West Coast. I had run Kana before and we knew we were building a software company. And then my ex-wife, Lisa, is a very dear close friend. We, we raised twin boys together. We've been divorced since like 15 years, but we're tight as thieves. And her health became an issue in 2009, 2010 timeframe. And so I stepped away. Michael stepped in and became CEO. And I, and I served in a limited capacity. I served on the board and I obviously was his confidant, but I was very focused on caring for our two boys. Late 2013, Michael's situation changes where his wife, Anna, is diagnosed with cancer for the third time. And that's the bad news. The good news was my family situation was such that that I had the capacity. So I stepped back in uh, early 2014 and allowed Michael the freedom he needed to take care of Anna. But there was a caveat to that, which was I said to the board in 2014, while my situation is stable, it can change rapidly. And I am the primary parent. And these twins, Jake and Charlie, are they're my life. And that's always going to be my priority. So let's be cognizant of that. And let's constantly be mindful that we're thinking through possible succession and, and so forth. I had a great time. I ran Strava from 14 through 17. 17, yeah, it was three and a half. So three and a half, almost four years. And there was just a period where I ultimately said to the board and, and to the whole company, I was very transparent because we did a long search, but I was stuck because the kind of way that I wanted to lead the organization and at the same time, the kind of parent, the kind of dad that I wanted to be to Jake and Charlie, they were at odds with each other. I just, I live in a little town called Portola Valley, which is about 45 minutes to an hour south of San Francisco. And our office is, is up in the city. And I wasn't able to find that balance that I needed, honestly, no. And so we did a, a lengthy search. We hired, uh, we hired a great guy. We hired a guy named James Quarles out of Instagram to run the company. And, and I was able to take the step back that I needed to really focus in on Jake and Charlie and, and everything that was going on in their life. But I also took a pretty big step back because allowing James the space that he needed to run the company and to step in as a new CEO is never an easy task. And then if you fast forward, what happened late last year, November of 2019, was James stepped aside, Michael came back in. And with Michael's arrival back as CEO, I then, because I'm his partner and his confidant and, and so forth, I just stepped into an executive chair role, which just affords me the opportunity to be Sometimes I, I joke I'm the chief muckraker. You know, I, I can get in and, and wreak a lot of havoc, but more importantly, just far more engaged than I could have been with James just because of the relationship that Michael and I have and, and the things that he and I want to get done with the company. So the thread is the kids. The thread is my boys and the company knows that they come first. It's one thing that I've been, I've been conflicted about lately, which is just like head versus heart decisions or like head versus gut. In a retrospect, you're like, well, my kids were important. I chose it, and, you know. But at the time, you're also like, this is a, this is like my third child. It's not a real one, but it's a child of sorts, and that that's a tough decision. Oh, there's no question. In both situations, Kana and Strava, was a moment where I hired another CEO to come in and run it. And I often joke, it's a little bit like giving up your child for adoption, and then are you going to stay living in the house or not? Because if you're going to stay engaged, the first time around, I really didn't. Like I I recognized this isn't going to be healthy, and so I stepped away, and Kana went around its path and, and I, I moved on. 
in Strava, it was there was this balance point where you're right, and, and it was challenging. I think if you were to talk to James today, he's no longer here. He'd probably say that yeah, he stayed living in the house and and created too many problems, and you know the founders were problematic and and so forth. And you know there might be an element of truth to that. I, I don't want to argue with him, but that third child is still there, and we care deeply about it. So our main company is AppSumo.com. It's the number one site online for software deals. And we hired Eamon about five years ago and he runs it and he's, he's phenomenal. The guy is, is amazing. And Chad is my partner. And it's like, are we involved too much? Do we involve too little? Eamon, how can we be supportive of you? Are we supporting you too much? And that's right. You know, I'm curious to hear your source of so the, the two things kind of around that. I was curious to hear more, you know, what are the unique things that have helped keep you and Michael successful over this such a long time period? Because Chad and I, I mean, honestly, we broke up. We broke up. We had a two-year stint. We had a disagreement on vision. And I said, well, f- fuck you and you take it and you go good luck with it. And obviously that's not the best, that was my fault and not the best way of handling it. You know, everyone always asks, but I, I feel like there's something unique with how you guys are partners. And I think another thing I, I'd like to know in that same question or same vein is like, how do you scale a company? Let's tackle the first one because uh, that one may be easier to answer, although it is unique. I, like, It's actually fun to talk to. I hadn't realized that you had the partner. It, I actually think that they're rare. So a couple of things come to mind that have worked for us. Uh, I'll bring up three. One is, I think by definition, we complement each other well. I have the degree in art history. Michael has the PhD in economics. Like there's left brain, right brain that's going on there that's very real. Like he mentioned just the other day, his approach to problems is very analytical. He loves to dig in. He is the person that I can trust without question around our data, around our finances and so forth. He knows that my approach to problems is go look for the answer from somebody. There's an expert out there. Like I don't need to be the expert. I need to use my network and I need to go, like we can find it. So that's one thing is we just complement each other that way. Second thing I'll say is we've learned over 20 plus years that I think we've always committed to the idea that the friendship will never die. Like we know it's always there, but there are times when the business needs to be first over the friendship and there's other times where the friendship needs to be first over the business. And we just need to be very transparent around where we think we are. And he and I have had similar hard situations the way you describe you had with Chad. There have been moments where we clearly were at odds. We've learned to try to keep that behind closed doors so that we're not out in the open with everybody else and we find compromise. And then the third thing I'll bring up is we have things that help us get to, I don't even want to call it compromise, help us get to the right answer. And I'll give you one example. Michael and I bookend almost every problem that we come up against. And what I mean by that is we'll take a a challenge that the company's having and we just, okay, what are the two bookends? What are the two extreme options here? I don't know. It could be as something as simple as an executive hire. It's like, okay, what would the life, what would the world look like if we just don't have that? We don't make that hire. Are there people internally that we can promote and so forth? Versus, great, we make it today, but we're clearly going to disrupt team chemistry, everything. Else. And then we know that the answer is probably somewhere in between. But by setting that framework, it just helps us bring sort of our two strengths to the table. So, and we've got a handful of just silly things like that. We have another one where we always approach problems with, okay, wait. There's a short-term, a mid-term, and a long-term solution to this. Let's talk first about the long-term because that's probably the easiest one, which usually is. Like when you think long-term, it's like even this COVID-19, right? Like long-term, it's easy. Get the vaccine. It's the short-term and a mid-term where it's like, oh, these are complicated. So we do that a lot. And by having those tools kind of in our arsenal, it's almost like we can operate shorthand. That's really unique stuff. Any other tools or? I can't think of a day that goes by, maybe occasionally right now on the weekends, but we're religious about checking in every day. I mean, again, we're remote today. I haven't seen him since early March. We're religious about that that consistency of connection. 
Sometimes it's a five-minute conversation because there really isn't anything to do. But other times, actually, we'll get on the phone thinking that there wasn't anything to talk about. And it turned out an hour and a half later, we dived into something that was really important. So I would say that's probably the third one that just off the top of my head has been really valuable for us. And when a few days go by where we haven't, things start to surface. You just Meaning like this stuff starts to get pent up. Oh, I didn't talk to him about that. And all of a sudden you have a backlog of information, you know, things that you really wanted to ping the person about. And I think this is true not only for a business partner, but anybody, anybody on your team or anything like that. If you let it go too long, that's when the challenges come up. I think for me, sometimes actually in, in our company, the worst is when I'm, I don't pay attention to you. And I know that's, I'm like, oh, this person's not doing well because I'm not giving him any attention and I don't want to. I love your communication thing with Chad. We stopped that. We used to do every Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 11. I would, you know, message, hey, do we need a meet? No. Do we need a meet? No. And then you kind of, and then we would meet for like a week or two. And the trust, you know, in all relationships, trust is important. Like I've gone to Chad. Uh, I mean, he's one of my closest friends. And I went to him and I was like, hey, I don't feel like working. I'm going to go walk around India for a month. And my impression is if you came to me and we were in a company together and you said, hey, I'm going to go walk around India for a month. I'm like, all right, fuck you. Like, get back to your desk and go work. And Chad's first response was like, oh, great, man. I think that, that's what you need. I think you should go. He knows friendship versus business. There is a way to dial those back and forth. And that's, that's yeah. exactly, that's what Michael and I have. You just sense, wait, he's clearly telling me something that's really important. And the idea is they're self-serving. If your personal and friendship needs are well-served, the business is going to be healthy and vice versa. So. Yeah. Yeah. The complimentary skills too, because I'm more the, the louder, I would say. Like I'm on YouTube shirtless doing some stuff and he's a programmer and, you know, he, he has amazing opinions, but he'll, and he won't tell you unless you ask or if he has like a, an old fashioned in him and then he'll tell you everything. Uh, you know, but it's, it's definitely complimentary. Have you guys had a, any huge disagreements or vision disagreements where you're like, oh, I really don't want to do explore? Cause even explore, by the way, as a customer of yours, I was always like, why haven't they done this for years? I was wondering why he didn't do it. It seemed like, the thing that we all needed the most. So I don't know, was there vision disagreements with that or have you guys had any other ones? We've definitely had disagreements. I think we've been, we've been aligned on vision and we actually, we take a lot of comfort in the fact that we could show you a plan that dates all the way back to 2010, 2011, where we're largely on track in terms of vision. We just wish that we'd gotten there sooner. I think we all know, like Explore, we wanted to get it out there and it's just, it is amazing at times well, why does this take longer than it should? Um, I know we've got restless investors as well. We've got, we have fantastic investors inside Strava, but even, you know, I fully get it. It's like, come on, let's get this out the door. So there's probably where the, um, where we've had disagreements, it might be on personnel, it might be on execution, timing, but you know, what's funny. And again, I think maybe this is the same thing you experienced with Chad. It's like, if we just talk about it, Sometimes we have to leave the conversation and come back. I, I have learned that, like in any relationship, there have been a few moments where it's like, hey, we are taking a timeout. Let's take a timeout here. We're clearly not getting to where we wanted. I'm really fascinated by the fact that it's very rare that when we come back, that we're still at odds, that a little bit of just reflection and then coming back to it. And it's like, I don't want to call it a workaround. There's a solution. There's a solution that we're able to find. So, but yeah, it's usually kind of been around the tactical stuff. One thing I would like to just hear any insights on, because I, you know, I think there's a lot of information on how do I get a business started? How do I get a few first customers? But I, there's really not a lot of material for someone that what you've done, which is like, hey, we got a company to a thousand people. I think that's what you said. And then now Strava's at 180 people and, you know, multi-million dollar businesses. You know, what are some of the things that businesses need to implement? And obviously that's a very complex, like, I mean, people go to school for two years to find out, but maybe uh, the first things that come to mind about 
you know, what helps has helped you guys scale to these larger sizes? When we scaled to Kana to, I think, you know, at our peak, probably about 1200 people or something in the, in the heyday there, that first internet boom, that was unhealthy growth. The acronym was GBF, get big fast. We were making acquisitions and just doing things where we, we didn't scale in a way that was sustainable. I think with Strava, if I'd say there's a change, the change is in really coaching both ourselves as leaders, as well as the rest of the company, how to begin to let go of so many of the decisions and trust others in the organization that if they understand what the, the goal is and what the general plan is, there's all kinds of tactical things we can get into, but just philosophically, the big thing I think that's been helpful is when we've learned how to entrust in others, empower those folks, and you have to be comfortable then to let the decisions get made. For an entrepreneur, it's a really hard thing to do because so much of your early life was you had to make every decision. You, in fact, you had to be the person who executed every single thing. The change is to really recognize that you can't do that anymore. And if you don't, like, you won't get the best people working for you if you don't allow them that freedom. That one combined with a really silly one, which is um, I am not good when I don't know everybody by face and name. I have tremendous respect for the founders who grow companies of, you know, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people. Because for me, I have so much affinity and so much appreciation for being in that small room and and hanging out with the 10 folks around the table and, and kind of knowing everybody's significant others and, and kind of their personal lives. And the other philosophical thing I'd say about scale is that you have to look for that connection in other ways. Even the 180 people today, I, I laugh sometimes, we use Slack and so forth. And I have to hop into Slack and check the directory and look, it's like, oh, they're on that team. Oh, oh yeah, I got to connect with that person. I haven't been able to do that in a while. And that those sound silly, but trying to figure out how to, how to keep those connections as the company grows, there's a real art to doing that. And I think it's important, but you have to realize you have to do it in different ways than you did when it was just 20 people hanging out in a, you know, a single room. How much is the productivity or structure or operations change with coronavirus? You know, we're one of the fortunate companies that maybe you guys have experienced something similar. I mean, we've gone up. Exactly. First thing is our, you know, from a business perspective, we're grateful to just be in a place where we are supporting people who are active and, and, and people are being smart. You know, they're getting out there and they're clearing their head. How much is it up? Not revenue, but usage or whatever numbers you're comfortable sharing. Like how, how much has it increased during this? What I can say is it's significant. Like what we're seeing, what's really fascinating, it's like you said earlier, Strava has this unique view into what's happening in the world at any moment in time when it comes to athletic activity. So we cannot necessarily predict behavior, but we can tell you in any given moment. So for instance, we can look in certain parts of Europe right now, like in the UK, it's just incredible. Like it's just incredible with shelter in place, uh, but very clear guidance from the government, sort of what activity should look like off the charts. And like I mentioned to you, the way in which they're doing it for charitable acts, the way in which they're doing it with families, the way in which they're connecting with people. But then you go look at Spain and Italy, gone. It's very clear that those countries took their government guidance seriously. They stopped working out. We can see when a polar vortex rolls through the northern part of the United States, because all of a sudden, all those cyclists who thought they were strong, they disappear. <laughs> right. So That's I cool. think that um, our insight into that piece of it, to your question in terms of how has it changed for us at Strava, we're very much trying to keep up with what's happening with the business. It affects us, but we're able to do our business. We're able to continue to do releases. We're able to continue to operate and, and service. So we're grateful for that. And I think the challenges have just come 
recognizing the personal dynamics that happen here. I mean, you know, half of our company are young parents with little kids at home, and these poor folks are trying to figure out how to be parents, teachers, coworkers, all things simultaneously. The other half of our team are single, and frankly, they're in an apartment maybe by themselves. And if they're not connecting with their coworkers during the day, it can get really lonely. That for us is kind of the more interesting side to this whole thing is just the um, how as a company can we show up, not just for our community, but for our team, for our employees. And it's really hard right now. I think we look forward to the day when at least the office is open. We won't expect everybody to be back there, but we'd like to know we have the option. I love that phrase. It's a phrase my friend Max says, and he always says like, you can't call it in. You got to show up. And I think that's something that's obvious with how you talk about your people and you behave in the company. This is a quick one. And I, I don't want to know any of your numbers. I don't care. But you guys seem actually more exclusively or secretive about it than I would expect. And I guess I was just a little curious about that because you seem like a very open person too. And it's, I don't need to know anything. I'm just curious, uh, like the thought process there. We decided there's a set of numbers that we think are of value and we can walk it through. Like here's a great one. Took us eight years to see our first billion activities. Took us 18 months to see our second billion. Took us less than a year to see our third billion activities. Like, you know, we can show momentum. Here's a stat we love. One of the ones we track really closely inside Strava, it's the ratio of being active to being in-app. So for every minute that our athletes are in the app, eyeballs in the app, they spend an average of 50 minutes working out, five zero. And we're watching that actually increase. That's cool. Like you said earlier, we're purpose-driven. Yeah, we could sit back and disclose sort of financials and so forth, but people are going to they're going to do with it what they want there. And that's not what's really important. So what we try to describe to people is here's what's going on, good, bad, and otherwise. Like people love about the 50 million athletes, but we're always quick to point out, it's like, look, we're small potatoes. And we know that the thing that we really enjoy is if we can't build a great business with 50 million athletes that are part of our community, <laughs> we're kind of idiots, right? Yes. That's our, no, if we don't add another member to our community, I'd like to think we could still build a great business for those who have found us. And so that's interesting. Hopefully that makes sense. It it's, does. it's not so much that we're trying to hide the numbers. It's just like we want to make sure people understand what's relevant for us. Actually, it's it's definitely making me reflect on what KPIs we, we look at internally, but also you know what we want to share externally. I think one thing that I've been working on with their company is like, how do we have numbers that our customers have success? We call them sumo-lings. Their success, as well as our success, is all aligned. That's really interesting, the minutes in the app to the minutes of being active. I'm, I'm going to think about that. I got a trainer just to use Zwift. It's amazing. It's really enhanced my training. It's a weird-ass place. It's like this, it's this <laughs> virtual world from 1995. Let me just put the word out there, Zwift, and what does that mean to you, and, and what's your take on that? I'm a Zwift fan. I got my trainer set up in my garage. Uh, people who know me know I, I very rarely get out on a road bike these days. Unfortunately, I have a rather sketchy history on the road bike. I've been put in the hospital twice by cars and once by myself. It cost me 11 surgeries just to get out of that one accident alone. So uh, for whatever reason, the road has just not been good karma. Unless I fall off my trainer, which is possible, I, I, I think I'll avoid the hospital. Great partner to Strava. We just announced some stuff. We, we tried to clean up segments inside Zwift just to make that a little, uh, just a little more fun for folks. My cautionary tale, I haven't figured out how to get onto Zwift and just take it easy. If I'm just going to just go ride for 45 minutes an hour, there's always somebody who goes by and it's like, oh, I can, you know, it's keep up. So I'm, I'm still looking for the way in which I can enjoy Zwift, but not feel like it's my hard workout of the week. Yeah. It's a little bit of Strava meets World of Warcraft or something. It's such a fascinating sort of uh, experience to kind of dive in and yeah, big fans. Who do you love following on Strava? It's actually, that's a kind of interesting thing about what people want to share publicly and privately. 
and who we end up following. Because like I'll follow a few celebs, like the guy I think who went tour that's in Colombia. But some of the people I want to find out new routes. And then some people I'm like, oh, I just don't want to see your stuff anymore. Who do you enjoy following? So good news on this front is that we're, this is a perfect example of dialing up features so that you can manage your, your feed far more effectively because it's, and again, you can appreciate from the Facebook days and everything else, what an art it is to try to figure out sort of what that follow group looks like. And when I talked about sort of your tribe, there's these concentric circles, right? There's the, at the heart and soul, I know that my favorites today, that's a, the feature that we added just a few weeks ago where- It was a little confusing. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I just want to share, it's, it's confusing to use. And then I had to go in and like figure out, I'm like, are you my favorite? Are you not my favorite? And it was like, okay, I have a few other things I wanted to do today besides yeah. that. And I think it actually is for a subset of our audience. And I fall into this trap where I have plenty of followers, but I have hundreds of people that I'm also following just with 11 years of history on Strava. And what was actually frustrating to me was just, I would miss people's activities that I really wanted to see. And so at least by taking the time to pick those few people, the reason they're favorites isn't because they're doing something. It's just that those are the people where if I've missed something, I'm almost going to be in the penalty box. So that kind of thing is where I start. And there really is sort of a, there's a local element to how I think about who I follow. Just based on where I am here in Portola Valley, there's a group of folks I've never run or ridden with directly, but they are my tribe on these trails. They are the ones who probably today own the KOMs and the CRs and, and all the records. And yeah, I can only wish I could chase them down, but they've kind of become the, the local legends around here. And so I've, I have a local connection to them because we're on the same terrain. And so I find that really valuable. And then there's that third category. There's just the, um, yeah, there's a really eclectic group of people that are worth following on Strava that uh, it might be someone like yourself. It, it might be, I love following Lance on, I just, I find it fascinating. I do like yeah, following see what Lance. he's doing. And other guys in a pro tour or, or uh, ultra running community. It's just a fascinating group on Strava. Oh, interesting. Oh my goodness. They just talk about the things that they'll just go do for a Saturday afternoon. But almost more than that, just again, the photos, The um, for me, it's all about the photos and the titles. And if you're creative there, then that's the kind of thing that I love to follow. So so that's kind of my third, my third group. Yeah. Any in that third category you can call out? I'm looking on your list to see if anyone I recognize or I can try following. Well, I mean, there's some well-known names within the ultra community, folks like uh, Jim Walmsley, or um, actually, I just saw today, it was really neat because she tweeted it out as well. There's a woman who ran the Boston Marathon, who won the Boston Marathon last year in that horrific rainstorm, first American, and I forget how many decades, Des Linden. You know, there's just examples of that where you know, it might be an elite athlete, but somewhat obscure. You wouldn't otherwise know about them unless you're following the sport. Like, the reason Des popped up today was that she just went and tried to challenge this person for a 5k loop and you actually go look at the performance it's just awe-inspiring and she didn't quite get it and she was kind of laughing about it and it's just it's that kind of thing where it's it's fun to see the human side of these folks and, and what they're kind of doing every day i think that's probably why i enjoy lance uh he's like the rest of us he struggles with his own sort of performance and time and yeah it's kind of fun as a non-professional athlete it's interesting to see the training that they go through no question like i saw the guy um i don't know what his name is in Colombia, but i follow and like, I'll do a 30-mile ride. I'm like, look at you. I'm proud of you, Noah. His, like, morning breakfast is 100. Oh, yeah. I kind of was curious, like, about public versus private, but you called it out earlier really, really well that Facebook kind of made it okay. They kind of said, hey, everyone, it's okay to kind of share some yeah. of this stuff. It's all about, is there value in the sharing? The pro cyclists were the perfect example. Mm. It took a long time. The one thing that we did for them that was unique was we allowed them to hide their power. It was not something that we gave to the everyday athlete. 
but we set it up where if you were a professional cyclist, you could confirm that on Strava. We had a setting that allowed them to hide their power because they were so nervous about sharing their training techniques and their volume and their oh, efforts wow. that they didn't want their competitors to see it. And then there was a sea change. I think what they started to realize was the risk of doing that was outweighed by just kind of being out in the open and sharing their training. And and when you start to think about their business, which is developing sponsorship dollars and, and developing sort of a, a marketing presence, Strava helps serve that purpose. But yeah, it took them a while. You guys called Strava and tracking bicycling specifically 10 years ago, 11 years ago. What are you seeing in terms of the future of athletic training? What are you kind of expecting in, in upcoming in the next 10 years? Well, if I go 10 years out, one of the things that I get excited about, my, my, and here's where the company is going to kill me, but I'm fascinated to continue to watch the evolution of how we can participate in even broader range of sports. Like I get fascinated about what's happening at the team level. You know, what is it to visualize what happens on a soccer field or on a basketball court or on a, in a football field and so forth? So I get really excited about the way in which we can capture what's happening there, but then integrate it where you're now seeing sort of the athlete to athlete. So I just geek out on this idea. And we're starting to see elements of that where they're taking, they're literally using everything from camera work to the wearables, I think getting more and more integrated into the clothing and so forth, more seamless. So that's a, just a fun space that we don't spend a lot of time inside Strava today thinking about. But if you give me 10 years, that's why I'm excited for Strava because we want to play in the middle of whatever sport is kind of being visualized digitally. What are some of the books in your background? I thought I saw some books. I was curious if any books have come to mind or uh, the ones that are on your shelf. From a business perspective, I go old school. Uh, there's two that I actually have had out even in the last six months, and they're both by Collins. There's original Built to Last, and then there's Good to Great that, to me, they're just timeless. I still love bringing those out. Just a really, both an analytical look at prior companies that really helps me sort of understand sort of putting theory to practice. Those are two. I'm reading one right now. Actually, a good friend of mine just launched, so I'll, I'll do a plug for her. It's called The Forever Transaction by a woman named Robbie Kelman-Baxter. Uh, I've known her for years. She was a classmate of mine, but she's really become one of the country's leading experts in subscriptions and sort of membership economies. She's got these two books out. There's one called The Membership Economy, but she just did Forever Transaction. It's really good. Just started reading it a couple of days ago. Awesome. Those would be the business ones. I'm super into fiction. I went old school again, even on the fiction side. I brought one out that I hadn't read for years, but it's probably my all-time favorite, and that is The Count of Monte Cristo. That is like my one of my favorite movies of all time. Oh, it's just the best. I call it the three R's, you know, redemption, resilience, and revenge. You know, it's just, I just love it. So yeah, I've probably read it now three or four times throughout my life, but um, it's just as good. It's like watching Star Wars again or something like that. I mean, I could just keep reading it. So that's the one I had. Is the book better than the movie? book is really good. All right. I'll put it on the list. Yeah. Just because it's a classic situation where you just can't get all the detail and, and all the Dumas does in the book. Oh, okay. I can't wait for that. Two idea suggestions for you. Have you read, have you read The Secret Race? No. It's Lance Armstrong's teammate's book. Oh, is that right? Unreal. Is that right? Unreal. Okay. It's my, one of my favorite books in the past. It's probably my favorite book of the past two years. The other book I, uh, I'm listening on audiobook is called One Second After. Basically, America gets attacked with a EMP. So all of our electronics go out. It's an electromagnetic pulse. And it's kind of like this thing that's happened with Corona. Like electricity's out. So the cars are out. And then the food, there's a run on the food. And what other things kind of happen? And so I'm only, I'm only halfway through, but I'm, I'm really loving that. Okay. Um, but I will, I'll make sure I uh, get you those two books. Okay, look, this is one of these questions. I don't know where it comes from, but I just knew I had to ask you. And this is where we'll end with. What does it mean to live a great life to you? The first thing that pops to my mind 
it's a great life is when I don't have to set an alarm clock. And thankfully, as I've gotten older, I seem to find myself in a pretty good place that way. And I'm actually not being cynical or facetious. Like that is, I'll keep it simple there. Yeah. And then the other is, I guess I'd use the phrase quality over quantity. And what I mean by that is whether it's, I don't have this huge long list of friends, but man, the ones that I do, they got my back and I got theirs. I've just got the twin boys, you know, 19 years old, and they've gone from these two things that I just want to make sure could eat and drink to now they're two of my best friends. And I'm so excited to see what they're going to do in the next chapter of their life. And so always focusing on the quality over the quantity, how much, like it's not about how much money. It's not about how many cards. It's not about how many hours. It's not about how many miles, but go out and enjoy the quality of whatever it is that I'm doing. And the friends that I have, that's good life right there. That's it. Mark Ganey, Strava, you're the man. Oh man, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Noah. Really, this is fun. This is fun. I look forward to following you on Strava. That's a wrap. I hope you loved the episode. If you did, go check out Mark Ganey and download the Strava.com app. Next, text a friend you love them. Yo, dog, let's do a barbecue together. And before you go, don't email me podcast at okdork.com. I'm not going to check it. But remember to go check out my YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash okdork. I've been putting out a lot of interesting content about overcoming fear and getting started on your business journey. That's youtube.com slash okdork. And a final special thanks to Jason at podcasttech.com. As always, for making these podcasts amazing. And thank you to Mitchell and David of the Dork Team. You know I love you guys. And a special shout out to Sean of Sumo Group and Hall Drop this week. Just want to let you know you're the man. Have a super day. Who's your favorite YouTuber? <laughs> <laughs>